Hello and welcome back to the RevOps Show. We had to take a small break last week while Doug was soaking up the sun in Hawaii, unplugging and recharging, but he is now back. And today we are back and in full swing because Doug has a topic that he's super passionate about and wants to discuss. He and Jess are going to get into what mostly everyone is getting wrong when it comes to their data and metrics. And let me tell you, just based off of this episode, there are quite a number of things that people get wrong. So pay attention. With that, let's get started. You know, Jess, we should have changed the opening music. Just to... Uh... Welcome to the RevOps Show, everybody. Welcome. Should it have been something Hawaiian? Is that what you were? Oh, hi. Is your brain still in Hawaii? Oh, my God. I think half my body's still in Hawaii. (laughs) It's not good. It's not good. Um, As a matter of fact, it's sitting right on the lounge chair, facing the ocean, just by the pool with uh, easterly wind, breeze coming through. (sighs) So jealous. A Mai Tai (laughs) in my right hand. And if I was younger, a cigar in my left. You know, it's not it's not enough that you abandoned me for over a week. It's it's that I thought you... it was a month. Well, that's what it felt like. I know when people when I'm not around for people, like that's what it, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's not enough that I abandoned you. What else? It's the fact that you abandoned me for Hawaii and and feel the need to throw that out there at any given opportunity. Oh, I mean. Now, let me tell you what, Hawaii is everything it's cracked up to be. It's on my list. It's on my bucket list. Um, got to got to take a, got to go the equivalent of four-wheel driving with a four-cylinder Dodge minivan, single-lane roads for a mile going in two directions with a, you know, 15,000 foot up right to your right and a 15,000 foot down just to your left. Terrifying. Had a back up. So someone else could pass. Oh my God. No. See that, that right there is giving me anxiety. That, that gives me no joy. Does not make me want to go. So, so I, we, we drove around the Hannah Mount, the, the Hannah side um, as a, as a planned day. Um, and I knew, I mean, there are shirts all over the place. I think I can't remember if one or two people that went, um, got the, I, I survived Hannah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into on that one. But then on the last day, because we just had some time to kill and we were on the other side. So for those of you that don't know Maui, it's basically two volcanoes. Um, so we drove the other side and the other side was paved the entire way. Um, the Hannah side isn't, it doesn't actually get any more to, to technically a dirt or unpaved road, but it, it might as well. Yeah. Um, but so, so it was paved and going into it, it, it felt fine on the Hannah side. You, you had, you hit some hard parts and then before you got to the bad stuff. Yeah. Well, on the other side, it was like all fine. Oh, this is nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, and then holy cow, I actually had one stretch where I, I actually did get a little bit, did get a little nervous. And when we yeah. got through it, cause this one thing, it, I, I, th- I think it's, there's at least according to several t-shirts, 612 curves. Wow. And, and I'm not just talking curves. I'm talking like beyond U-turn curves. Yeah. At 30 to 45 degree angles going down and up. By the way, those <sighs> curves, while you're on 35 degree or 45 degree going down 
and or going up, obviously not both at the same time, and it being single lane to less than single lane both ways. With I would be with in some places on the side going down, there is no rail. There's basically a small little curve. I'd be going two miles an hour. <laughs> we were going probably five to ten. I mean, we were, you know, but yeah. I, I had one stretch where I actually, luckily, when we got through, there was a place to pull over, see the ocean. I literally had to pull over, just kind of, yeah, my breath. Um, my wife only made one mistake that week. She, for whatever reason, in that stretch, she decided to start joking, and it was clear. I mean, I was hands at ten and two. I was. You know, when you're driving on those things, you're like using so much of your, you know, like, I mean, it was, oh, high, yeah. Right. And yeah. she started like trying to joke with me, or, and I'm, and I finally said, shut the fuck up. Oh, wow. And, and here's the thing no one was surprised. No one was upset. <laughs> it was all like the one time in your life you can say that to your wife and it's, and it's, and it's justified. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in my defense, it can be justified more than that one time. But it's understood. Yep. So. Yep. And yeah. and oh, our viewers are reaping the rewards of of you having been on vacation because this is a Friday recording, which Absolutely. we know are the most entertaining ones. Those are the best. So they are. The best. They are. Friday afternoon recording. So, um, so I think we've got a pretty good topic today. It's it's one that you it's had thrown not out. Pretty good, Jess. Oh, I'm sorry. It's great. It's great because it was your idea. No, it's it's just it's Tony the Tiger great. That was me. That was me poking fun. Um, so passive aggressive, Jess. A little bit, a little bit. I, I that's how I get on Fridays. A little bit passive aggressive. I'm done with the week. Um, so we want to talk about what almost everyone is getting wrong about data and metrics. What almost everyone is getting wrong. So why don't you tee us up a little bit and kind of talk about talk about that? You know, one one of the th- I mean, I, so I want to, I want to do a couple disclaimers first. I love data. I love metrics. I think the ability to gather data and, and, and what, you know, the opportunities we have, I, I think, I think it's tremendous. That, that said, I think that we're jumping the shark. Um, and for those of you that don't know what I'm saying, look up jumping the shark, um, look up happy days or the fonds jumping the shark. Um, we, we become data obsessed. We become data addicted. Um, you know, there, there's an old phrase in, in, in development, every strength is a seat of weakness. Every weakness is a seat of strength. And I, you know, that, that, that's what's happened with data. And, and so I, I actually think that, that we are getting to the point in more cases than not, that data is actually doing more harm than it's doing good. And, and, you know, one of my favorite old phrases is, you know, for far too many people, data is far more like a lamppost is to a drunk used more for support than for illumination. You know, I hate when people ask the question or when people says, well, what the data says or what does the data say? Because the answer to the question, what does the data say is what would you want it to? What, what, you know, what do you want it to? Um, data's getting a reputation as being the truth. And, and I think, you know, in, in, in this world of algorithms um, and, and there's more and more coming about, you know, one of the things we talk about as one of the primary points of failure whenever you're implementing any piece of technology is that once you implement technology, once you go to automation, small misalignments get magnified. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the level of, of misalignment gets magnified and the rate 
is 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 magnified or is multiplied. That's what we're doing with data, right? And and so you know to 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 believe for a second that there's not opinion and subjectivity that goes into the data is 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 a major mistake. Um, and and so actually, and and it really hit me. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to Michael Lewis's podcast um, against the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I love Michael Lewis. If you haven't read his stuff, um, he's one of the authors that basically he comes out with a new book. I get it. And I'm happy 80% of the time, about 20%. I'm like, yeah, this topic's not as, as interesting to me. Um, but he, but he introduced, um, actually, you know how they asked that question, you know, if you could have dinner with any mm-hmm. one person, who would it be? Yeah. Uh, and, and this is one he interviewed one of the people that, 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 that is on that dinner list for me, Bill James. Now, those of you that just heard the name, you either know who Bill James is or you have no idea who Bill James is. I, I fall into the no idea camp. <laughs> so so Bill James wrote the book for years. You know, every year it came out called the base, the Bill James Baseball Abstract. Bill okay. James basically invented what's called Saber Matrix, which is now called Advanced Analytics in Sports. He was the precursor to Moneyball fascinating story there um the you know the way it came about i actually in the interview i learned some things about him kind of how it how it came to be and you know the thing that's interesting is and and you know you've heard it many times lord knows because i've said it many times if for no other reason you know moneyball has become a verb yep you know and and, and it, it, it's it's a verb an adjective and a noun it's one of those rare words that has and and the, so the thing that's interesting you know so basically you know all this data obsession all this data analytics in, in, in business, et cetera, it, it can all be traced that like the, the origin of that was, was Bill James baseball abstract, you know, the way he looked at it, the, mm-hmm. the you know, all, all this. So, so all this, all of this data analytics, we owe some ode of thanks and, and a tip of the cap to Bill James. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that Bill James is not a fan of the movement that he started. And, and, and so Bill James is not a fan of, of the people who have taken what he's like. He's not a fan of Saber Matrix today. He's not a fan mm-hmm. of advanced analytics. Um, and and his, his underlying point was that, that the, the value of the data was always about asking better questions. Um, it allowed you to get closer to the truth. Um, actually, you know, it, it, it in, in his origin of it, he referred to the baseball field as a field of ignorance, that so much was going on, but no one had a clue what was really going on. And so the idea was, how do we get closer to the truth? Now, one of the things that he believes in is that there is like, you'll never get to the truth. It's just, you can get closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. And in the early years of, of baseball abstract, and he didn't say this outright, but I actually think this is one of the reasons why he stopped writing it. But in the early years, one of the things that, that you know, as, as it picked up popularity and fans bought it and me as a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old bought it every year. Um, but one of, the, one of the complaints was there was no rating. Like there, there'd be all these analytics, but there mm-hmm. wouldn't be a rating. And I think if I remember correctly, towards the end, they started adding a rating because basically the publisher said we need a rating. Right. And, and, he, and he hates ratings, Right. Um, and, and he said, because the point of ratings is ratings is the idea that, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing judgment. This is better than this is better than this. And because you're using a number, you're, you're creating, you know, you're a, a subject, a subjective judgment gets put forth under the aura of objectivity. Right. And so he hates for baseball fans out there. He hates war. 
War stands for wins above replacement. Right. Um, because war gets applied as he's a seven war, he's a five war, so he was better than him. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so this was the abstract that Michael Lewis gave. So I'm going to credit it to Michael Lewis in the interview. And he was talking about the problem with data and the problem with metrics. He says the problem's not the numbers, obviously. It's how people use them. The numbers start out as a tool for thinking. They wind up replacing thought. And that's where we are far too often. All of these metrics that, that, that have been created, all of this idea of analytics, all of these things, they are effective as a tool for thinking, right? And, and, and by the way, Bill James, for the, for the data non-baseball player person that he was, and if you've ever seen a picture of Bill James, you'll understand he never threatened any you know, professional athlete. He doesn't believe that the data tells it all. Um, and if you remember the movie Moneyball, which, which by the way, was a fictionalized version of the book, there, there was truth in there, but there's also yeah. a lot of fiction. You'll, you'll, you'll remember the old school stayouts, and there's a lot of truth into, into what that scene was where they talked about the eye test. Yeah. Right. And the eye test is you got to see a baseball player to know. Right. And, 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 and if they're good, you can see it. Right? Yep. Now, that's, that's not true. Right. <laughs> The idea that the data tells the whole story, that's not true either. And, and, and that's why the people who have done the best with analytics in sports are the people who marry the eye test and, 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 and the analytics. Where do they reinforce each other? Where do they conflict? How do we dig into it? How do we think differently? Data is good. Metrics are good when they impact our thinking. Data and metrics are good when they impact and drive are our hypotheses data and metrics are bad when we use them to answer when we when we think of them as the answer to the question as a matter of fact they are so bad that there's a law for this it's called goodart's law and goodart's law says the moment you take a strong measurement and you turn it into an objective it stops being a good measurement Right. And, and the, the example I always give in marketing of Goodart's Law at work is click rate. Right. This email had this email was successful and it had a 10 percent click rate. Wow. Click rate. 10 percent click rate. Wow. That that's a measurement. Mm -hmm. Hey, Our emails need to have high click rates. So we turn the click rate into the objective. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we introduce a new word into the dictionary called clickbait. The email wasn't successful because it had a 10 percent click rate. It had a 10% click rate because it was successful, right? And so, you know, it, it doesn't mean click rate doesn't matter, but it also means it's not all that matters. It's like, what's the question that, that's driven from this? How does this add to our thinking? And so what are people getting wrong? Mm -hmm. What is everyone getting wrong about data and, um, and metrics? It's, it's not, they're not using it as a tool for thinking. They're, they're using it as the thought itself. And, and they're not taking into account what it means. And I'm sure you've got some questions that we'll get into. Yeah. So I think, I think the, the take on data is not the truth. I mean, it seems so counterintuitive because that's the data. So, so your sense would be that that's got to ultimately be true. Um, so I, I guess my question, my first question is how do you, how do you know what to pay attention to? And, and how do you know kind of how to look at that and ask questions? Well, I, I, need, I need you to give me a little bit more when, when you're saying 
how do you know what to pay attention to? So like, let's use, let's use the click rate example. Like how, how do I know that click rate shouldn't be what I pay attention to? How do I know that I don't want to drive up click rate? Like, so, like so I'm not saying that that metric is not a metric you should pay attention to. So, so my issue, well, 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 certainly I have some of that. They were paying attention to metrics that we shouldn't be paying attention to. And, and, and so I will actually give you an answer to that in, in just a second. Um, my, my bigger issue isn't the metrics that we're using. It's how we're using them. It's not the data that we're using. It's how we're using them. So again, the problem's not the numbers themselves. Obviously it's not, mm-hmm. right? It's how they're being used. So in, in, in terms of what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, well, there's nothing wrong if you're totally unsure. Just start with what everyone else is paying attention to. But again, it gets into, are you using those to answer questions? Like marketing attribution. And I, I see it in demo after demo after demo as marketing attribution has come about. Mm-hmm. This shows you how marketing has contributed to the pipeline. No, it doesn't. Actions are attributed to it that aren't actually attributable. And and many other actions are not attributed that are attributable. Right. So, so it's a, it's a measurement and NPS net promoter score was a really effective measurement. And, and, and I would say it was a far more effective measurement before it became the number everybody uses and they go, Oh, we're good because we have NPS, you know? So, so like one, one element that I'll say is I care about the trend far more than I care about the actual number, but to get into what to pay attention to, you know, what your outcomes, I'm sorry, you know, what the results you want are. So, so that's obviously a metric mm-hmm. um, and, and that's a metric that matters. You know that there are activities that you need to get to that metric, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with results is to use that as a guide, it would be like trying to drive a car looking in your rearview mirror, right? So, so the results are lagging indicators, but, but also results don't tell the whole story. Right. Right. Um, there's all kinds of conditions that come into it. Like for example, um, I know in many industries 10 months ago, they could put up great numbers doing a lot of stupid things. And today they could be doing great things and they're not putting up the numbers that they put up 10 months ago. Um, one of my favorite phrases, one of my favorite philosophies is never confuse brains with a bull market. So, you know, with results, they don't really get into the why there's not a lot of instruction to it. The problem with activities, because I'm what, what I want to say is what everyone else says is they don't mean anything, but, but that's not actually true. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, everyone makes fun today of call activity. How many calls do reps need to make? And, and some, and I've heard people say, look, I don't care how many calls reps make. Number of calls is, is completely irrelevant. And I say, is it really? And they go, yeah, it's irrelevant because it doesn't matter how many calls I make. It matters how many conversations I have. I go, okay, how many conversations do you need to have? I need to have five conversations. I go, okay. So, so if I make five calls and I have five conversations, are you okay with that? And their first response is, yeah, I'm okay with that. I go, really? Yeah. I go, really? <laughs> so, so you don't mind that a rep makes five calls and has five conversations and they take 95% of their time off. <laughs> right. And, and someone says, no, results are the only thing that matters. I said, okay. Yeah. Right. Right. We, we, so, so one of the things I want to know is, you know, how many swings, like, I don't care how many swings you take. I care how many, how many times you hit the ball. I care how many hits you get. Right. But, you know what? If you don't swing the bat a certain number of times, right. And, 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 you know, I can look at somebody because if I say, look, it doesn't matter how many swings you take, 
It only matters how many hits you get. Well, well, A, I don't fully control a hit. B, someone starts becoming tentative to take swings. Yeah. Right? You know, I, I, I had a conversation with a client uh, the other day, and I said, look, one of, the, one of the big problems in your sales organization right now is when we look in this thread of opportunity, you, you, you have an 80% win rate. Yeah. Now think about this. How could that be bad? It would be like it would be like a hotel or an apartment building having a hundred percent occupancy. Yeah. Right. Hundred percent occupancy is bad. Now, some of you who are listening, going, "How could a hundred percent occupancy be bad?" That <laughs> gets to another aspect about where we get things wrong with data is we don't really understand the meaning behind it. We just kind of take it. Again, that's an a- aspect of it replaces thought. The reason one hundred percent occupancy is bad, and and by the way, when I was a kid there used to be regularly signs, no vacancies or vacancies. Because mm-hmm. like legitimately, you'd go in a lot of places that, that didn't have, you know, they were at 100% occupancy. Well, what that means, you're not charging enough money. You would generate more revenue if you increased the rate. And if you're not at the point where people are not buying from you because it's too expensive, then you probably could have increased what, what you got and you're better off if 95% of people paid more and 5% of the rooms were still available, right? Yep. So, so again, what are you solving for? So, so you've got to look at, at both of those, but they don't tell the story. There's a thing in the middle. So I call activities efforts. I call results results. And I call the middle element outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I say efforts lead to outcomes. Outcomes are highly influenceable with a causal relationship to the results. Right. So, so I can influence those numbers. I can influence that aspect. So that's why in baseball, we look at, at data like, um, well, we used to call it hard hit percentage and now they actually calculate miles per hour off the bat. Mm-hmm. Right. And they'll say, well, this person's hitting 130, but we're not worried about it because their velocity off the bat has actually gone up, which means they're making great contact. They're just hitting it to where people are. Right. And as we Willie Killer, we, Willie Keeler, said, hit them where they ain't. The problem is, unless your name is Sammy, you don't really get to control. See, that was a nice <laughs> inside joke for the Imagine team. That was. That was. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have control over where the ball goes off your bat in, in the professional game of baseball, right? But you do have control, not 100% control, but you do have control over how good is the contact that you're making? And if you're not making good contact, then we can begin to work on making that adjustment. And just because you make better contact doesn't mean that you're going to get more hits. But it's a pretty safe bet that the more consistently you make good contact, the higher the probability, the number of hits you're going to get will be. And if you continue with that over a period of time, you'll see you know results improve. So what should you pay attention to is, you know, what are the, what are the efforts that lead to outcomes? And again, I am not saying that, that they don't, that, that the activities or the efforts and the results don't matter. They do. But the thing that we're really trying to influence is the outcomes. And then here again, remember, you're never going to get to the truth. So are you using those? You know, how, how are you using the data to ask better questions? And I'll share this with you. Data is useless if there was not a hypothesis. Why is that? Because you can't ask good questions. You can't like the the reason that de- the reason that we obsess about data is we seek predictability. That's the behavior that we're trying to influence. Yep. 
it, it, it's all about, and you know, it's funny because no one talks about that, <laughs> right? At least I don't hear anyone talk about it. You, the reason that they we're doing this is we want predictability. Mm-hmm. We, we want if, we'd love if then statements. And I love if then statements. If then statements are great. If this, then that. We want predictability. Well, predictability means we get what we expect, right? So if, if you're playing pool, have you ever noticed some people play pool and they're kind of really good at it until you tell them they have to call their shots? Right. Yeah. That that's that's the difference. So so the 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 question isn't for, for data to be valuable. The question isn't what's the data. The question mm-hmm. is what's the data relative to what you thought if you want to influence outcomes, if you want to influence results and generate predictability. So if I go and I look at the data and I didn't have a hypothesis, then I have nothing to compare it to. Okay. Right. And so I'm going to look at everything through the rear view mirror and I'm going to be really good. And humans are really, 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 really good at creating rationalization. So we look at the data and we go, oh, well, this was, you know, and we start explaining the why we don't know. Now, that might be where you start because you got to start somewhere. So you look at the data, you see something, hey, this looks really good. Do you use that to create your next hypothesis? Right. Hey, we have a 10% click rate. That'd be great. You let, let's get it to 15% click rate. I have a hypothesis that if I can increase the click rate by 50%, I'll increase the whatever by whatever percent. Okay, guys, what can we do to increase from 10 to 15%? Right. And I think what most people will find is if you do that, where you, you know, the objective becomes getting to 15%. Oh, by the way, with what I just did, I kind of prevented the 15% from actually being the objective. Because in the hypothesis, the 15% is a means to the end. Like, here's my favorite number that I've seen, and I see it consistently with the clients that we work with. I'm, I'm not saying that this is always the case because we have a bias to how we look at things or how we approach things, okay? We, but the clients that we worked with and the companies that we work with that generate the greatest end results typically see a reduction in lead volume if they were doing active lead generation. Yep. Right? Because... Now, now, I'm not saying that that if someone took the approach where they're increasing lead volume, that means they're not going to get that growth, right? We we tend to have a bias towards, you know, finding the signal. And, and, and one of the reasons I'm a big fan of that is I just as soon not have to filter through the wheat to get to the chaff or vice versa or whatever. I, I don't, I don't know enough to, um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, but, but, but again, that, you know, that, that gets to the point where when, when the focus is on lead generation, it's like, I, you know, yeah, we need a new website. What do you need a new website for? Well, our website's not converting enough. Okay. So you want more conversions. Is that really what you want? No, you don't want more conversions. You want more revenue. Yeah. Right. Oh, by the way, if, if all I do is I get more revenue, well, uh oh, there's a problem because maybe I'm not generating enough customers. Right. So, so, so there's a band where if, if lead generation gets too high, I've lost efficiency, but if I get too efficient, I've lost production capacity. Right. And, and, and so, you know, here again, it, it's having that and realizing there is no right number. It's all relative to, and how is it driving your thinking? Yeah. And I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing you, through what you're saying, you really, you really got to focus more on what's causing the results and using the data to help understand that versus what you're talking about with the looking through the rear view window and, and 
paying attention to the results. Yeah, you you want to avoid resulting. You certainly want to get, you know, get get to underlying causes. But but again, it's like where 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 the data element comes in is: Are you looking at the data to provide you the answer? Are you looking at the data to replace something? So this is another area where I see people, you know, managed by the numbers, right? You what do you that? mean by that? People say that. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. I have no idea because that's what other people say. <laughs> and I go, well, what do you mean by that? Right? Well, yeah. well, the numbers tell the story. Right? <laughs> you know, you, you know, we believe in self-managed, you know, we believe in being a self-managed company. Yep. We believe that, you know, you notice if you think about what things I used to say when you first started to things I don't say anymore, how, how often did I used to say, if we hire someone that needs to be managed, we hired the wrong person. I yeah. used to say that all the time. You did. How often do I say that now? Not that often. I, I, I bet you can't even remember the last time I said it. Until no. right now. And that's because I realized that's just a really bad version of management. That means if we, if we need to hire somebody who needs to be told what to do. Yes. But that's not what management is. No. <laughs> right. B because here, here's another thing to understand about numbers. Numbers become the score, right? What you measure gets done. Yep. Well, there's a couple things to that. It's not just what you measure. It's also how do you measure? Sure. Yeah. Right? So you better measure, you better measure what matters. But here's the thing that's interesting. What matters is really hard to measure. So when we, so A, when we put measure on it, we tend to look for measurements and that's why we get the bias towards results or, or sure. activities efforts because they're much easier to identify or we use compensation systems to, to quote unquote guide behavior. Um, and, and, and yes, they do. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of, if you ever want to know how important the score is, just watch a bunch of 12 year olds before and after someone says, Hey guys, let's keep score. Yeah. So, so the other thing that happens is, the moment you start putting a metric, the moment you start, the moment you announce the metric, the moment you say this is a KPI, you've just radically changed behavior. Yeah. In, in some ways that you'll be able to predict it, in other ways you won't be able to predict. And, and what you have to understand is the numbers never tell the full story. They tell a part of the story. So if you're not continuing to, to watch it and test it, you run into a whole lot of problems. There was, there was a really interesting article on the four flavors of, um, of good arts law. So here's the four forms of good arts law. The first one is regressive. Let's imagine that you have to hire Ken. So by the way, anybody that's interested, it's the four flavors of good arts law. You can look it up. It's on business intelligence for practitioners, holistics.io. Let's imagine you have to hire candidates for a job. What you really want to measure is their future job performance, but you can't measure this directly during the job interview. Then you learn that IQ is correlated to job performance at about 0.6. You decide to administer an IQ test instead. What could go wrong? You know, what you'll find is at first you'll get a, a you, you'll, you'll probably see an uptick because you're yeah. being attentive to something, but then all of a sudden you'll, you know, you can imagine what, what, what goes on from there. The second is extreme occurs when you pick a measurement because it's correlated to your goal in normal situations, but then adopting this measure makes you optimize for that, for that measure. Oh. And at the extreme of the measure, it breaks down. Example here, example they use here is our relationship with sugars. Humans evolved to like sugar because sugars were correlated with calories in our environment. By the way, do you remember 
there was a time that we incentivized high sugar foods because high sugar foods were actually lower calorie foods. Yep. Right. We, so calories became the objective. We started managing calories and all of a sudden we became, you know, a carb intensive and now diabetes is, you know, at epidemic proportions, causal Goddard's law. You're a principal of a high school. You learn that students with good high school exam scores do better on college exams. You conclude that helping your kids do well on their high school exams will lead to good things. So you roll out a program to teach them test-taking skills. And before you know it, you're teaching how to get a good score on the test. Yeah. And my kids are in public school and they just did the standardized test last month. So I'm, I'm and empathizing and feeling that. <laughs> and this is my favorite adversarial Goddard's law. Here's the greatest example of, of where Goddard's law really gets in trouble, right? This is my favorite story. In 1902, the French colonial government in Hanoi created a bounty program. There was a huge rat issue at the time. So they created a bounty program. They paid a reward for each rat killed. But, you know, the cost of having everyone bring in dead rats, et cetera, like it, it, it was determined not to be manageable. So you know what they did? To collect the bounty, you would just have to bring in the severed tail of the rat. Well, rats can survive without their tail. <laughs> Can't they? Well, so here's what happened. People cut off tails of rats. Didn't kill the rat. They cut off the tail. You want to know what was worse? I don't, I don't know. They want to know. Go ahead. <laughs> they started to breed rats to cut off the uh, tail. So the net result of it was more rats. Were more rats. Ugh. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the relationship with salespeople in clothes. It's a perfect example of adversarial good art. How? Okay. So just connect that for me because I'm not, not quite following. Um, if you don't ask someone to buy from you five times, you know, you, which, which was actually an underlying bullshit number to begin with. It was actually made up by somebody just so everybody knows. Um, here's an interesting data point. So, so we became closing obsessed. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing that's interesting. You know why closing has a high correlation to winning sales? And, and more importantly, it has a high, um, what coincidence, it, uh, that's not the wrong, the wrong term. It happens closely to getting the result. You know why? Why? Because typically you do have to ask somebody, so do you want to get, you want to get started? Yeah. We, we did our, we did a last touch marketing attribution review. It found that we actually had, and you know, I believe that you can't, 80%, we had an 80% last touch attribution. You want to know what it was? It was a I'm very asking. specific email. Do you know what email oh. it was? Sh uh, should I stay or should I go? No. Oh, what? It was the email with a link to sign the quote. Oh, well, that's because <laughs> by the time you're sending that, you, you know, well, they've already said yes. And yeah, so the, that's last what I'm saying. Touch, the last touch. So the person that was demoing it to me, I said, so does this mean I should just start a campaign and just send out a quote to everybody? By the way, what you think I'm kidding. <laughs> there, there's an old phrase in sales. If you tie an order pad to a dog's tail and let it run around the neighborhood long enough, eventually someone's going to fill out an order. Yeah. Right. Sales is a numbers game. Right. And I always say, well, it, it's true to the extent that sales is a game where numbers are involved, but those are all the things that come in and work. So, so why does a salesperson go from the very beginning and, you know, why do they push too far too fast? Why do they not stop, slow down and consider? 
because I got to ask to close the sale. Yeah. The more times I ask them, the higher the chance. So it becomes how many times did you ask to close the sale? This whole obsession with intent based becomes, you know, it, 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 it's good arts law at work. It's looking at data to provide the answer. And so we over optimize to an indicator. It's like, you know, if you watch Moneyball, the movie, you'll leave going, well, walks are what matter. Which, which, by the way, was actually one of the smallest elements of what Moneyball actually was. Yeah. But, but here's the point of this. Does that mean that I, as a baseball player, should just learn how to walk? Here's my question. Why are dwarfs not populating Major League Baseball? Why is Peter Dinklage not a Major League Baseball player? Because I bet you he could walk a lot. And if you think I'm yeah. kidding, Bill Veck brought out Eddie LeBaron and put... He was he was a dwarf and it was yep. you know right and, and again obviously what I just said is borderline offensive and I apologize for <laughs> but but that's my point of you can't forget that the data is merely a representation of the situation and the moment you start watching it it changes what goes on and and it needs to guide it's a tool for thinking it is not thought itself yep. and so if you're not adjusting your KPI four times a year. You're probably not doing it right. More importantly, if you're not talking about the context behind the measure, you're not doing it right. If there's saying, not a hypothesis, you're not doing it right. And are you saying if you're not adjusting your KPI, is that because if you're not adjusting it, you're not asking questions, you're not? Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I'm not saying that you have to reset every KPI. I'm just saying if, if, if there's not an adjustment that's happening, then, you know, you're, you're, you're out of date Be, because you're not really looking at the qualitative side of what's happening. You're not asking better questions. You're just, you know, finding your answers. This, this may take us off to another path, but I'm curious because you, because you talked about the fact that you like to pay attention to trends. Do you think people aren't paying enough attention to trends and they're just looking at the, the numbers as they are right now in the moment? No, I wouldn't say that. I think people think they're looking at trends, but well, you know what? You, you, you don't have a valuable trend if you don't have a hypothesis behind the trend that you're, that, that you're looking at. So, so again, my, my point on, on NPS is okay. I care more about the trend. Um, so for example, airlines have very bad NPSs. They have negative NPSs. Um, there are a lot of other industries that have negative NPSs. Yeah. Does it mean it's bad that you have a negative NPS? Um, no, it doesn't. Cause, cause by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm doing $50 billion. I'm making $5 billion. I have a negative NPS. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll take 5 billion with a negative NPS. <laughs> you know, um, Southwest has an, you know, at least back when I looked at the airline numbers, you know, Southwest had a negative NPS. Now their negative NPS was less than others. Right. Right. Um, by the way, one of the things that Southwest does really well that helps support their NPS, because you know the, the Southwest experience is not better than other airlines. There, there's a little bit better because the flight attendants will tell a joke and those things yeah. that, that happen. Okay, but but it actually gets into and, and you know Herb Kelleher when he was around that you know and, and that culture still sustains somewhat from him. Treated data the you know the, the right way. What Southwest does extraordinarily well is they manage expectations better. So you don't expect more. Yeah, the people who are most ticked off on a Southwest flight are the people who haven't who haven't been on it before. I've noticed, like, because they don't know what to do, they don't know what to expect. But people who have done it before and know what to expect, they're content. 
So, so when, when I'm flying a short haul flight, I, I choose Southwest. If I have a choice, I choose Southwest. But, but tell me how the experience, the Southwest experience is better where I'm thinking, well, actually Southwest, it used to be you had to get to the airport earlier. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Well, you, well, you did because you had that you, your spot. So the way Southwest originally worked was you showed up and you were given a number and that was your boarding. Right. Number. Yeah. Right. Which, which meant, you know, people used to get there like eight hours before their flight. <laughs> Right now it's when do you book? And so now Southwest, one, one of the biggest fees that Southwest collects to the tune of billions of dollars is the early bird early registration. Bird. So that now before they had early bird registration, do you know what I used to do? I used to set an alarm to 24 hours before my flight so I could check in because it was first check in first number. I, I still do that. And then I opt for early bird if I haven't gotten a high enough number. You can't do that. You can you can get a high B group if you if you. I'm I'm usually okay without a without an A group. You have to do, you, do early bird but, to get an A group. But but how do you check, get a bad number, and then do early bird and get? If a high? I you can you can still do you can or maybe it's upgrade maybe it's upgrade, upgrade and not right? early. That's so I upgrade. That's what it is. It's okay. not early bird. Yeah, okay. you're right. Um. So we're flying back on Alaska Airlines, which by no means is a great airline. Um, <laughs> but one of the things was it was, and I, I'm, you know, was talking to my daughter, actually they flew back on United and I said, well, yeah, you know, like what time do we have to get there? Blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, you know, and, and when do we register? Like, it doesn't matter. Cause you already have your seat. Yeah. Right. So, so there was actually a little bit less stress and, 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 and those various things. But again, Southwest manages those expectations. Now what you'll see with what Southwest does is there's that hypothesis behind that, that, you know, wh why are flight attendants given more flexibility? Because Southwest was very clear on the result that they, that they were looking for low fare. Yep. Which meant they were really clear on what are the, what are the outcomes, what leads to costs. And what they realized was flexibility for flight attendants on how they behave in certain things didn't impact costs. So they embraced that personality. Whereas, right. So, you know, there, there are, sure. Right. So, so it, again, it's what's the thinking that, that brings to it. I know, by the way, for all those years when Southwest was profitable and every other airline was losing money, do you know why they were profitable when everyone else was losing money? Because they were cheaper. Nope. Why? Because they bought an oil hedge, they bought a 10 year oil hedge. Oh. Back when oil was at like $14 a barrel and everyone was like, oh, oil's going to be free. They spent, when they, I, I still remember when they, when they bought that hedge, everyone was like, that's ridiculous. Why, why are you hedging oil when it's so low? Well, it went over a hundred dollars a barrel and they were still paying $14. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you know why they did that? Because what they knew was if we could lock in oil, if we could lock in this cost, then we would control this and, you know, to our low cost model. And so if it stayed down here or, or even got cheaper, okay, we're going to be able to be in our model. But if it gets above this, that becomes a problem for us and we can eliminate that problem. And and why did the other airlines not do that? Because they viewed it as a cost as opposed to, right? And there's an example of, does the data drive your thinking or does or is the data the answer? Yep. All right. So I've got a couple of key takeaways and, I, and I'm actually going to- uh, Oh, I got another one for you before we go. Oh, go ahead. Why are forecasts always wrong? Oh, that's it. Yeah. So why are forecasts always wrong? <laughs> Because remember I said how you measure is, is, is as important as what you measure. Yeah. 
so so there's there's a um i've I kind of gone blank on the word but a truism it's the wrong word but it's the <laughs> word. that you need to have that it's called pipeline coverage mm -hmm. how much potential business needs to be in your pipeline mm -hmm. for you to be able to hit a number and and the sure the, and the typical coverage you're here is 3x or 5 and and that assumes that your closing rate is somewhere between 20 and 33 percent mm -hmm. But the problem with that is that how are closing rates typically calculated? Well, they're calculated on the idea that if I have 10 opportunities and I win three, what's my closing rate or what's my win rate? Yeah. Do you know what the answer is? What? I have 10 opportunities, I win three. What's my closing rate? 30%. You know what my answer is? It's not that. But <laughs> I don't have enough information to answer the question. Okay. Right. So it's the end number. So number of opportunities. Okay. Right. Yep. So we have $5 million. I'm sorry, so mm -hmm. let's keep it easy. We have three opportunities. We win one. For every three opportunities, we win one. 33%. Right. Okay. So I have $3 million in my pipeline. Mm -hmm. Or let me change it. I, we need to do a million dollars in revenue. How much do I need to have in the pipeline? You need to have $3 million. Sure. Right? 33%. But again, what we just did was we just changed the metric. Yeah. Right. The metric was number of opportunities, and now we're translating that to revenue. Well, regularly we see that the dollar weighted closing rate is the most common numbers we see is 20 to 40% of the number of opportunities. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So all of a sudden I'm using a number weighted element. Mm -hmm. So I we win a higher percentage of lower value opportunities. Yep. And we apply that. Now, let's go back to one of the things that, that I talked about earlier. We, in our experience with the co companies we work with, typically they generate higher revenue with lower volumes. Right. right? Well, that's because one of the things that we look at is, and, 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 and a common element in a lot of companies that we work with on an ongoing basis is they tend to have more of a premium offer, sure. et cetera. And, and so, you know, we actually work to win, you know, I want to see for, for, for our business, and imagine I want to see our dollar weighted number above our N factor number, right? And I, you know, I, and, and so actually this year right now, our our win rate on number of opportunities is I think 42%. Mm -hmm. Our dollar weighted is 65%, right? We're losing smaller opportunities. I'm okay with that. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. So now, now, again, I'm not telling you that that's right for everybody. But one of the things that we did 18 months ago was we started to establish that hypothesis of, okay, what do we have to do? We want to win bigger wins because we can support it, you know, it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and how you're looking at that then changes what you're going to do, how you measure it and so forth. Yep. No, that's, that's really good. So the, the couple of takeaways I have, the numbers never tell the full story. I think that, and that gets to the money ball analogy of eyeballs combined with the, with the numbers. I, I want to get one more thing on that, by the way, mm -hmm. which is even when they do tell the full story, that story is no longer relevant. That's not the story anymore. Oh, okay. I see. Right. So yeah. like, let's say we did get the accurate picture. Guess what? It's different now. Yep. Yep. And and I, I've on on the on the second point, which I think is the biggest thing we've talked about today, which is the data should be prompting you to ask more questions, not find answers. 
Um, I want to I want to call out Drew, who used to kind of drive a lot of our analytics and reports. And, and one of the things he was responsible way back when was putting together monthly insights based off of the data and the analytics. And, I, and he struggled so hard with this when, when he was doing it. And he had this aha moment when we talked to him about, hey, you're not here to find answers. This is all about what are the questions that the data is prompting you. And then all of a sudden it, it unlocked that for him and he was able to really easily put that together. So do you remember what happened shortly after that? I, no. I don't know what you're getting at. You started <laughs> asking 20 questions for every metric. Oh, yeah. This is true. <laughs> do you know what we call that? Good. What? Yeah. It became how many questions do we have? And it's like, again, no, 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 Drew. Yeah. Right? And then, and then it became, so now it's the hypothesis. Where does this fit to the hypothesis? And, and, and so yeah. everyone talks about data science. And I want to emphasize something. It's called data science. It's not called data physics. <laughs> physics is a branch of science. Yeah. And, and the, the, the reason I bring this up is, you know, physics tends to talk to the truth. You know, technically, gravity is still a theory. Right. Right. It is still the theory of gravity. But I'll tell you what, if I dropped my pen right now and it went in the opposite direction or it just stayed there, I would be like, okay, what the, you know, David Copperfield yeah. is still, I guess if he is getting paid, I don't know. Is David Copperfield still a performing a magician? I think he might've gotten canceled. But there's some magician that's out there that, you know, yes. oh, look at this. It's staying the same because, right. For my, for my generation, that would be David Blaine. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so... We, we mistake science as certainty. The scientific method is hypothesis, test, outcome. By the way, I'm not even going to get into the null hypothesis. Right. One of the things that I love about the scientific method, and I actually wrote a blog post, you know, science was taught wrong to me. I hated science class. I mean, I hated it, which, you, which to some degree you have to be fascinated by, given the amount of, of science... And I'm, and I'm talking, I mean, chemistry, biology, yeah. I failed them both, right? That is pretty both, amazing. Right? Well, the reason was, and, and by the way, you know what part of it I hated the most was lab. And you know, oh, me, yeah. how could lab be the thing that I hate? <laughs> well, well, the reason was, is I wasn't testing anything. I was, yeah. I was responsible for reproducing something. You know, I, I hated geometry. I asked, um, I remember I asked my, my teacher, I'm like, will we ever have a proof that you can't prove? This right, is you know, fascinating because right. I love geometry, but go ahead. Right. Well, but here's the thing, right? You know, I love logic. I know. Yeah. That's what geometry is. Right. Now, something I mean, I thought geometry was all about shapes and stuff, but I found out that's something else. But like, how could I have hated a class and thank God for Grace Hazel, or I may not have graduated high school, or I should say thank God for Grace Hazel's falling left shoulder. Right. So I could see just over her shoulder to ah. see, um, or I, or I may not have gotten through. And, and, and part of it was like, okay, here's the given, here's the whatever. And I said, well, will we ever have something that, you know, is not provable. And the answer was no. Right. And I couldn't help but think, then what's the freaking point? Yeah. Now I regret that. Cause I, I wish that I, I wish I understood what I knew now. Because I would have sought to understand the thought process behind that. And I, and, I, and I think that would have helped me, right? And I certainly would have found it more interesting. 
you know, when I learned that science was, hey, you know what? If you have a strong hypothesis and it turns out to be wrong, you, you won't make the same amount of money that you would if it turns out to be right. Right. But it's equally valuable. And, yeah. and as a matter of fact, if you don't ever find, like if you're quote unquote a scientist and you're, you know, and every one of your hypothesis is true, you know what they call those people? They call them charlatans because there's, that's not how it works. Right. right? Or, or you're playing it too safe, you know, all, all of those things that, that come in. So, so that scientific method is hypothesis, test, adjust, hypothesis, test, adjust. Right. And, and it's not about being right or wrong. And what you find is the greatest scientists, they're, they never operate from a place of certainty. You know, now, again, we all seek certainty. Right. And that's why, again, I want to emphasize it's data science. It's not data physics. You, you, you know, apply the scientific method. This is not, you know, our business will never be physics because there's too many moving parts. Too many things are changing. The question is, um, and, and I will say this, there is no valuable metric. There is no valuable analytic if it doesn't connect to an intervention. An intervention is, what are you doing with this? What, what behavior are you looking to influence, change? What difference are you looking to make? If, if you give me a metric that tells me I'm going to run into a wall in five minutes mm -hmm. and there's nothing I can do to change that path, then that metric does not have a lot of value. Not that helpful. analytic does not have a lot of value. It may yeah. be true, but it's not doing me a lot of good. And, and if it tells me that I'm going to break away and have my most profitable year, okay, that's great. I'm going to celebrate that. But, but okay, that was, you know, someone asked me about doing an incentive for like um, to, to a partner community for like having a 60 day, um, whoever sells the most wins X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I, said, I said, the problem with that, and they agree with me, by the way, they, they took the feedback really well. So the problem with that is the sales I'm going to make in the next 60 days, that's all the result of what I've done over the last whatever period of time. Yeah. So, so you announce the incentive, then basically you're, you're just rewarding the people that were already in the position, right? Yep. So again, those are all examples of how we use the idea of data and it feels good and it sounds good. And I get this question. You didn't ask me this question. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask it for you because I get asked it a lot. You know, I talk about click rate or I talk about track mm -hmm. and, and they go, yeah, yeah. But you know, my CEO, that's the numbers they want to see. Oh yeah. So, so how do you deal with somebody, you know, that's asking for something, right? Here, here's how you deal with it. Ask the question back. What do we want to do with that information? Yeah. How do we want to be able to use that information? Right. What, what's the insight? What's the answer that we're seeking? And then how are we going to use it? Well, I want to know what the click rate is because that'll tell me if my marketing is effective. Okay. And, and, and what is that click rate going to influence? Well, it's, it's going to influence the number of inquiries that we get. Oh, okay. So what we want to do is we want to measure inquiries. Hey, here's a crazy thought. What if I could increase inquiries with no clicks? Yeah. Yeah. Right. What if, what if I could increase inquiries at a lower cost using highly targeted advertising Mm -hmm. Right. That, that brings somebody in through a different channel or. Sure. You know, or what if I did a podcast that then, right. So, so, you know, all of these things come about that, that create situations where we start going in the wrong direction. So when you get that question, when you're being asked to track a vanity metric, mm -hmm. just ask, how are we going to use that? Because yeah. by the way, that's, that's what a vanity metric is. A vanity metric is a metric 
that's not tied to a hypothesis or an intervention. Yeah. So you can turn a vanity metric into a valuable metric by tying it into a hypothesis or an intervention. And by the way, what's an intervention? It's just the application of the hypothesis. And you know what the net result of that is? What? You'll be able to measure a lot less because we are measuring far too many things today. There you go. And that might be a topic for another episode. Yep. I or I so. could go on a rant on that, Jess, because it's Friday. You could. But I'm going to say let's not. <laughs> this is being recorded, so I'm, I'm a little bit apprehensive to say this, but you're right. This yes. was a great topic. I'm, it's I'm on the just record. editing the you're right part. That's going on the soundboard. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Um, I, I think this is really good. Um, Fridays, Fridays are becoming my favorite day to record podcasts. There you go. Until next time, Jess. Yep. Thanks, everybody. And that's a wrap on this episode of The RevOp Show. One thing that was really refreshing to hear was that your data isn't the answer to your questions, nor should it be the thing that you put as an objective. Rather, your data should be there to aid you in asking questions, making decisions, and continuing to improve. Everyone, myself included, could use that reminder from time to time. Anyways, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to go subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share the episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask Doug or Jess about data, metrics, or anything RevOps related, email me at hannah at imaginellc.com or hit us up on Twitter at demandcreator. Until next time, remember, you can't solve your upstream problems downstream.